Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it is Cindy Adams, Madam Adams, from Monday through Thursday's daily column in the New York Post to my large mouth on WABC Radio, 770 on the dial every Sunday, 1 to 2 p.m. Back a load of scandals ago, like a decade ago, we had a front page called Rachel you could tell. Rachel Yucatel had a love affair with Tiger Woods and was a front page big time item. She was the face or whatever other part she was using at a time of chaos. It was when Tiger Woods was then married with children. She got off, she says, on being a love addict to such an extent, she says, that she could have done shows on celebrity rehab. Rachel, you could tell if you don't know, it was a front-page housewrecker. A relationship was her steady exercise. She now has a literary agent, and as soon as she nails a publisher, she's writing a tell-all book, or a tell-something, if not practically all. Tiger Woods made her sign an NDA back in those days in return for a few million. Story is... He then pursued her for $3 million when they argued that she violated that NDA agreement. Who knows? Who cares? I only know that Rachel Yucatel, right now, this very moment, is going to tell. Itching to tell. And I am telling you, Rachel Yucatel in those days was the big late-night club scene. Big in the boudoir scene. Big in the page one scene. Big in the on-again, off-again Tiger Woods lover scene. She also has an ex-husband. This new book is supposedly a tell-all or a tell-something. Everyone misunderstands me, she says. Yeah, like, who, who hasn't heard that before? She says, I don't even know what my name means. I'm trying to get my name back. Well, it wasn't such a good name to begin with. I feel I have a purpose in this life. My purpose is to find out what that is, but I'm still trying to find it, whatever the hell that means. She is now saying it's important for women to make decisions based on facts. I want my daughter to understand everyone has a story and be able to tell their side of it. To know I was resilient. Oh, honey, you were a lot more than that. She says we must know that every day is a new day, and you never know what life will present and what opportunities it can bring. Well, I don't know if I'm going to read that book, but the woman's beginning to sound like Socrates. How revealing additional comments may be, only Casper the ghost knows. I only know Rachel from her stunning, clawing, pawing days, and she is hustling this book, maybe looking to come back for 
a comeback. As what? This I don't know. Listen, I'm lucky I know this. Meanwhile, onward. On another front, there was recently a Bonhams auction of Michael Caine's tchotchkes. They raised a few pounds. The Rolex gold watch, which we have lately read has just been stolen off a few people, it was worn next, this one, was worn next to Steve Martin in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and was estimated to bring eight to 12,000 pounds. This Rolex, you ready? It hammered at 100,000 pounds. And that was before Bonham's 25% takeout. His iconic specs only brought a lousy 1,500 pounds, and the bargain of the bunch was a pair of broken leather home theater seats with one footrest missing. That sold for 380 pounds. Michael Caine was not there. Maybe home brewing a pot of tea? Well, he phoned his agent to ask, any news about a new movie? Pay attention. We are talking important now. Rolling Stone picked their 50 greatest superhero movies of all time. Should in case people on gasoline lines care, number one was 2018's Black Panther. Number two, 2004, Spider-Man 2, which is one of about 12 trillion Spider-Man movies. So fill up your tank and TV, and on to more important things. Wait, I got a lot of other things. Now I'm going to tell you about YouTube's stand-up memories and a comic named Peter Bales. He said he's so smart that, quote, he says, I actually once told Eddie Murphy to stay in college so he'd have something to fall back on. Okay. Jackie Martling, known as the Joke Man, he said, oh, I'm not sure I should tell this, but I'm telling him. He said, Albert Einstein loved filthy jokes. Einstein's favorite was, quote, My thing isn't that big, but I love every foot of it, end quote. Martling, by the way, is Mensa, or at least was Okay, okay. Now, serious stuff. Our cities. Robberies are up 50%. Midtown is over 80%. AOC, you should excuse the expression, is ranting that, quote, we are not progressive enough. Kindly remember that when the borough of Queens won that bid to house the huge new Amazon center, she is the only one who fought to refuse its billions, plus the 25,000 jobs it would have created. Was that dumb? This alone might be why her center part is empty. AOC also tried to kick military recruiters out of inner-city schools, raging they targeted minorities. She is also the only Congress creature against restoring deductions that could benefit the wealthy, who, pay attention, have since fled, taking with them millions in taxes. Also, 
Her own district was underwater during weather events. It was 20 deaths attributed to flash floods. And it was this center part who voted against the repair. Okay? AOC should rightly be spelled A-S-S. Okay, more about our city. Let me just tell you the two previous police commissioners, two, both of them who had Eric Adams on their staff, told me separately, individually, that he had been than a desk lieutenant. A written test made him captive, captain rather, and not because he'd done anything worthy. I asked what special did he ever accomplish in the NYPD. And both previous NYC police commissioners, neither special nor outstanding, said he did nothing. Nothing. He did nothing. He was not special. He was not anything. Okay, that's our mayor. I am now coming up soon to a two-minute station break. After that, I am going to have as my guest a movie actor who's a stage actor, who's a best-selling writer, and now also a restaurant owner with great Italian food. His name is Chaz Palmentari. Remember his big smash, A Bronx Tale? But first, <laughs> before I get to that, a New York City boss to his brand new employee who was just hired after the big COVID layoff said to the hiree, now I have to tell you, the staff likes you. They like the way you dress. They like the way you're friendly. The problem is I now have to assess one other thing. Your lousy, stinking, typing, spelling, shorthand, filing, and plain, dumb ignorance. Now, my two-minute station break. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am now about to speak to Academy Award nominee for Bullets Over Broadway. His name is Chaz Palmentary. He's also known for A Bronx Tale. It's been a movie. It's been a play. It's been everything. He has a podcast. He has an Italian restaurant. He has a beautiful wife. His name is Chaz Palmentary. So, Chaz Palmentary, my friend, I remember the huge, jazzy Broadway stage opening of your A Bronx Tale. <laughs> Any yeah. of those old-time gangsters guys show up that night for the opening? Oh, my God. Yeah, a lot of them did for the opening. They were, And they were all in the first couple of rows, and they just sat there. You know, and and cracks maybe a smile. And while I was doing it in the opening, that I'm going, oh my god! I I know people, other people are laughing. I go on, but I'm going to hear a lot of. And all of a sudden, they came backstage and they were smiling backstage and loved it, and they had a great time. But I guess it wasn't cool to laugh. I don't know. <laughs> they just. But weren't laugh. you a little uh, seriously? Weren't you a little bit scared? Well, I knew I changed. I changed all the names, you know. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, uh, Eddie Mush knew he was Eddie Mush because 
that was Eddie Mush. Eddie Mush was there, in fact. You know, that, you know, I mean, in other words, Eddie Mush was in the audience when I was playing the part. You know, and those guys were all alive back then. You know, and they knew who it was, who they were, but I didn't use their real name, so it was okay. <laughs> you know, so it was okay. We know we know so much about the Bronx Tale, but we don't know all so much about Chaz. Where, what what are your experiences growing up? Tell me. Well, I mean, basically, if you look at the Bronx Tale, I mean, my my experience was I was this, you know, I was this young. An art. I was like an artist. I I wrote poetry when I was fifteen, sixteen, and and I got it published in the uh, the high school, uh, my high school thing. And I I would write. I, I you know I wanted to be an actor when I was ten, eleven. I grew up imitating all the wise guys. Um, you know I I wanted to sing. I wanted to, I wanted to act. I wanted to write. It was inside my blood, you know, and so I would imitate all the wise guys growing up, and all the wise guys would, and all the guys would go, "Oh, let Chaz do, tell the story," because I would tell the story and I would embellish it and make it funnier than what it really was, and I always saw the humor in everything, everything, no matter what it was, no matter how bad it could be, I can make it funny, or exaggerate it and make it funny. And I thought about that. You know, it's an interesting question you asked me, Cindy, because I, I thought about my life lately. You know, I'm getting older and I'm writing things. And I go, wow, yeah, you know, I always did that. I always made something that was serious or something that was funny, funnier. Okay, were, so, you, poor, uh, were you poor or rich or what were you? Oh, God, no. We, I, I, I would say we were poor, but we weren't rich. We were all the same. We were lower middle. I would say lower middle class, yes. Yeah, we lived in a five-floor walk-up. Um, my dad was a bus driver. I remember he made $48, $48 a week. That was his starting salary, I remember. Oy, right. And, you know, I remember... It's about what I'm rent. getting earning here. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I remember our rent. Our rent... I shut that off. What the hell is going on? Our rent was um, $36 a month. And um, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> My rent was thirty-six. I remember our rent was thirty-six dollars a month. I never forgot that. And and I still there's a mentality of me that that still always thinks that you know it's terrible. It really is. But my dad, my my. My dad was always like with an up attitude. My mother was always happy, and and everybody in the Italian neighborhoods and we we all had the same. So I didn't really think I was poor. We 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 you know my father had to go to the Shylocks to borrow money when he was behind. He, I remember that you know. And did you try, ever try to do anything that wasn't honest, like your friends? Uh, I mean, did I do some things that weren't honest? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I oh, did, okay, yeah. yeah, okay, I, Nothing serious, nothing hurting anyone, nothing, uh, did we steal things? Yeah, I, I have to be honest about that, yeah. Okay. We, uh, we had a club, we had a club uh, in the basement of my friend's house, and, um, you know, I never told this story, and, uh... <laughs> No, tell it, tell it, tell it. Go, go, okay. go, go. And we needed furniture. We had no furniture. So we said, where the hell are we going to get furniture? So my friends and I, we all went up to the Grand Concourse because that was the Jewish section and everybody 
that was that was like beautiful back in the fifties yeah. and early sixties. The Grand Concourse was like Fifth Avenue, Cindy. I know. So we would go in there, and we would steal the uh, uh, the stuff <laughs> that was in the lobby, the the, the furniture, the uh, the table, the couches. And I want to tell you something. It was because of us. It was because of my crew of guys that they started putting the chains. They chained the luggage, uh, the furniture, and everything. <laughs> and that was because of us. We would literally walk in to a lobby, pick up a couch, and walk out. How do you literally. schlep a couch? A couch is big. How do you schlep yes, a couch? We would pick. We would all pick it up and walk right out with it. <laughs> I mean, right out of the door. Right out of the door. Now, the doorman buildings, we couldn't do that because there was a doorman there. But there was a lot of buildings there that didn't have doormen. So we would walk in there and t- and just take the furniture. And that's how we – and uh, it was really funny because I remember when my friend my friend Phil Foley, his father was a detective, he came down there and he he saw our club and he goes – he saw these like leather couches and things. He goes, "What the hell?" He goes, "What is this?" He goes, "This place is better, decorated better than my house. Where'd you get this stuff?" We said, "Oh, we we found it at a sale." We were, and he knew. Okay. He goes, "Hey, just stay out of trouble, all of us." Okay, you ha- you were a class act, pal. Okay, so tell yeah. me, how did you know how to write a play? I have tried. I'm a writer. I can't write a play. How did you know how to do that? Uh, it's very simple. I'm I'm, I'm gifted. I have oh a, yeah. I have oh, a... very funny. Very funny. And I'm not. Is that it? No, no. You're gifted in what you do. You've been around for. I don't here, know, here, watch your years. mouth. Watch your mouth. Yeah. Oh, uh, you've been around a long time. That's pretty good. You have a gift of writing. That maybe you could write a play if you really maybe put your mind to it. No, I couldn't. How did you learn to write a play? Okay, how did you do that? Because I was a storyteller. I was a storyteller, and I read as an actor. I read so many plays, and I knew the format. You know, it, it fade in, fade out, cut to. I was so I was very familiar with that. I was very familiar with plays growing up. Reading, I started in theater. I was a theater major in school, so I knew <clears throat> the format. But now you got to write. <clears throat> excuse me, the stuff. So I don't know. Just it was natural to me. Okay. What are you doing with the show now? I mean, I know what you're doing, but you have to tell the audience. Well, if anybody wants to, I still do the one-man show. I still do it after 35 years. Uh, okay. Oh, 35 years. I did my 1,000, my me 10th performance recently at Staten Island in the big theater there. I'm going to be, just so you know, October 1st, I'm going to be, Back on Broadway for one night only at the Town Hall on 43rd Street. One night only. This is a 35-year anniversary. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm doing the show, and then I'm doing a and a afterwards where the audience will be asking me questions about how did the show happen, about the musical, about the movie. And so I'm going to go through all three trilogies, the movie, the musical, and the one-man show, which started the whole thing. Okay, so how do you get the questions that you will answer? How do you know which ones will you will answer? You're not going to answer them all. Well, I mean, I'll try to. I mean, I, if anybody knows about it, it's me. Um, I wrote all three of them. I wrote the movie, I wrote the musical, and I wrote the one-man show. So I could basically answer anything they want, you know. And uh, 
I, I'm just really looking forward to that one night. But if anybody wants to know where I am, all they have to do is go to chazpalmentary.net, and my schedule is there for the whole year. I took the summer off, and I start again in September. And uh, that's all they have. Just go on my Instagram, chazpalmentary, my Instagram, and uh, follow me, and you'll see. I always post where I'm going to be. And my podcast, the Chaz Palmetary podcast, uh, all they have to do is go to my podcast on YouTube or Spotify, Google, uh, and okay. I always talk. I always okay, talk okay. about it. Okay, if you're schlepping to places like Utah or downtown yeah. Wisconsin, wherever the mm. hell that may be, yes. do they actually understand Bronx type guys? Does it doesn't matter. The show works anywhere. It has it has been a hit everywhere. I know. Everywhere. I know. I know. But do what, how how can they understand? They I know I know the show is wonderful. So of course they will love yes. it. But how can they understand everything that you guys Bronx okay, wise are talking about? I'll tell you about? why. I'll tell you why. Because I wrote archetypes in the show. I wrote these characters who are archetypes, who are it's it's the conversation he has with his father is any conversation a boy would have with his father. The problems between the father, the son, and the wise guy, the influences uh, of being poor, of growing up, trying to make money, trying to be success, looking at the line between good and evil. Is it evil? How bad is it? Was Sonny really evil? No, he wasn't. Was he evil? Was he a killer? Yes. But was he evil? But he told the kid, Sonny told the boy to do the same thing that the father did. Exactly the same. Get out of the neighborhood, be a success. This is better. This is not for you. Told them exactly the same. Okay. That's what makes the story so okay. great. I understand that. Did you yourself ever personally have a bad experience with one of these bad guys? With a wise guy, you mean? Yeah. A a when you say a bad experience, uh, pick pick whatever you want. I mean, did they ever okay. muscle well, you? Well, do... I was uh, I I knew yeah I could tell you that sure. Uh, in nineteen, well, I could tell you a couple, but in nineteen ninety four, I was uh, uh, I went to the bar and um, where we where we would go. Not all, not I would go visit all the bars, and I went to a bar in nineteen ninety four, and we were standing outside the bar. And I, I met this, I, we're just talking, rapping, talking, laughing. They didn't see me in a while. I got nominated for the Academy Award. It was pretty, uh, you know, exciting. And my one friend who I knew just got made, a very dear friend of mine. We used to play basketball together and everything, and he just got made. And we're all talking, and, and he's standing there. He's all dressed up nice. You know, nobody mentioned anything. And I turned to him because we were laughing about something, and I said, "What the hell do you know? Come on, you you don't know anything about that kidding around." But but you know, in, in for real. But he was talking about something that I said, "No, no, you weren't there. What the hell do you know about that?" And I could feel the tension around the guys when I said it. Yeah. And he said, and he said to me, "Chance, could I talk to you a second? So I said, "Oh." Yeah, what's up? He, he went, come here. And we, he pulled me on the side. Now, he's my age now, same age as me. And he says, um, he says, you know what happened, right? I go, what? What happened with me? You know, they never say it. And he goes, you know, what happened? What happened? You know. And I went, oh. 
oh, yes. And then I realized what he was talking about. And I said, yeah, congratulations. And I hugged him and I kissed him. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't even congratulate you. I, I forgot all about I just didn't, I didn't think of it, you know. And he said, y- you can't talk like that to me in front of people anymore. You know, and I knew <laughs> at that moment when I looked in his eyes, it was different. We weren't best friends anymore. I got it. it I you got know? it. I got it. And I just said, cool, man. I get it. And I said, you're right. And he was right. He was right. And I said, I got it, brother. Don't worry about it. And we hugged, kissed. He said, I know. I figured that. I knew you didn't realize it. I said, no, no, no. I, I just didn't realize it. And uh, and that was it. Yeah. I got it. it. Oh, I'm coming to an end, but I got to know what might next be for Chaz Palminteri. What are you going to do next that I have to know? Other than your one-nighter, uh, well, I, I, you know, I've, I'm on Godfather of Harlem, the great TV, TV series. Guys, want to watch yeah, that? Yeah, it's on with Forrest Whitaker. I'm also on Gravesend with some great play, with some great, wonderful actors. I'm on Asante and Forrest, uh, you know, and um, uh, William Forsythe and uh, Willem de Mayo. Some really wonderful actors on and, Gravesend. And you've got a great Italian restaurant that I have to come to. I want you have to. I, want I some... have one of the best. I always say one of the best because I never want to, you know, say the best. There's a lot of wonderful restaurants in Manhattan, but I have two restaurants. One, Chas Palmetteri's in Manhattan, 30 West 46th Street, and Chas Palmetteri's in White Plains, 264 Main Street. Absolutely five star, great restaurants. Romantic people will love it. It's uh, an, an an incredible experience. Okay, get the hell off. I had enough of you. You were wonderful. It was great. To Let me tell you something. You <laughs> are a legend. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you are a legend. You are a legend. I know. I know. And all I have to say to you before you go is, yeah. Cindy Adams, only in New York. Thank only you, baby. In New York. Thank you, sweetheart. Right. Thanks, lovey. Bye. Bye, Jazz. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Stratus Morfogan may be one of the most interesting or fiercest or at least less terrified or best connected, smartest guys you can meet. He owns and has owned top restaurants like Philippe, Julan Club, Brooklyn Chop House. That's at the moment. Hey, Strat, when did you open your first restaurant? Where was it? Uh, I was actually at Gotham Diner. Uh, after I left my family business in 1991, I opened Gotham Diner on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. And then from there, I probably opened another 40 restaurants in my 35-year career. <laughs> why, why did you go from restaurant to restaurant when they were so successful? Um, different reasons. Demolition clauses. Um, uh, I sold them. Um, properties were sold. Uh, downturn in the economy. Okay. There was a lot of different reasons, but I, um, but where I am today, you know, the journey. You know, I kind of wrote this journey in my new book, "Be a Disruptor," and basically, all through my life, I've always been creating new versions of a classic, like of a classic restaurant brand. I've always like twisted it and created my version of that, and and that's that's you know that's how I got to where I am today. Your book will talk about the Be a Disruptor. Tell me about your first, you've written about this, your story with your first experience with the mob and how they tried to shake you down. Is, is it, Does that still exist to some degree? No, it's gone. I mean, in our industry, we say pre-Giuliani, post-Giuliani. Pre-Giuliani was the Wild West, where it didn't matter. I had to choose um, the mob's choice for garbage, produce, yeah. Yeah. Meat, 
fish. Um, and then if you had a very successful business, you'd get a knock on the door and you'd have to pay an alcohol tax to the mob for protection or they would break your windows or, or break the legs of your managers like they did to mine. You know, they beat up my managers until I, until I was supposed to give them five, six, seven thousand $7,000 a month. And like, you know, the article came out recently in the Post where I said, go F themselves. And that's what I said to guys like John Gotti Jr. I had no fear. And I wasn't going to succumb to being shaken down. And these guys ruled the whole Upper East Side to Midtown. If you had a successful business with alcohol, they were going to knock on your door. And if you didn't pay, they'd break your windows every week. And that was pre-Giuliani. Today, it doesn't exist. I mean, they're still out there, but they're all, you know, now that you've legalized gambling and cannabis, and, you know, they don't have any more businesses left. They're also living in Yonkers, and they're living upstate, and they're in the Hamptons. They're looking, they're looking like they're classy, but they're not. I mean, I know, I know some of these people. But yeah, they, 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 they've learned to be low-key because they realize that being loud and boisterous usually gives them a one-way ticket into prison or the this, morgue. I, I don't understand. I know you've read, written about it, and you'll tell about it, but how was it that you, as a young man, we're not terrified. We're not scared when they were going to break your, your manager's legs or they were going to hit you if you didn't do what they wanted. Tell me how that well, works, that you had that guts. Well, the three biggest judges in New York were my aunts and uncles. Well, that helps. Supreme yeah. Court of Queens, Supreme Court and Appellate Court of, of New York State. Okay. So that yeah. was like what I had in my back pocket at first that yeah. gave me the, um, the guts to tell them to go F off. But what happened was, I didn't think the FBI and all that could do anything for me because I, you know, they weren't afraid of the FBI in 1988 to 1994. And with that, um, uh, you know, I very naturally and organically became very good friends. They were my customers first of the, of the boss and the underboss of the Genovese family. And they were customers. They came in, they paid, they were very low, low key. We became friends first and they started me cleaning up black paint. And broken glass uh, constantly at Gotham Diner. And one day they said, what's going on here? What's happening? And I said, well, John Gotti Jr. and his bunch of thugs that hang around with them are trying to shake me down. And I'm not, I'm not giving in. And it was very quickly done by Ralph Coppola, who was the underboss of the Genovese family. He said, sit tight. And literally two days later, he said, go to Ferrier Restaurant on 65th and Madison and be there at 11 o'clock. And I knew that was a big Gambino hangout where mm-hmm. all the capos used to sit in the back. So I got there, and I was there with a guy named Bucky Carbone and Ralph Coppola. Oh, I know those names, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and Ralph Coppola simply said, um, listen, this Greek is around us. He's my nephew. That was the first time I ever heard that. And he goes, tell Junior to stay away from him. And if he doesn't, he better come correct because this is going to escalate. And the guys on the other side of the table, which were all big capos of the Gambinos, they were actually really nice. They were like, listen, we like this kid. We know this kid. We're going to squash this, Ralph. We don't worry about it. We didn't, you know, I'm sure they didn't know they were, he was around you guys. So don't worry about it. This is going to be squashed. And lo and behold, it was squashed. You know, and uh, the, from there on, I became really untouchable from all the thugs. Joey, my husband, you know, was a, the, was a comedian, and he worked in yep. all the nightclubs. In those days, these are the guys who owned these nightclubs. One day, yep. I had a whole cache of jewelry that was stolen, all of it. And Joey made one phone call. I don't know to whom. It all was returned the next 
day. So yeah, I don't know how it all circle. works, but it worked. No, it's a very tight knit circle. Um, and, and I, I got to tell you, uh, this started with me early on when I was six years old. My first lesson was from Carlo Gambino. I mean, I was a busboy at, at my dad's Chelsea Chop House in Howard Beach. And he would be there two nights a week with his friends. And I saw the way my father treated him. And I heard the name for the first time. And here comes a chubby six-year-old busboy saying, hey, hi, Mr. Gambino. Good evening. You know, and here's a guy that went out of his way to be discreet. And, and here's a six-year-old busboy that knows his name. And, you know, he put $20 in my pocket. And he said, come here, kid. How's school? I said, school's good. And he goes, high is good enough. And that was my first lesson, lesson in discretion. And, um, you know, I, and I remember when I was six years old at the Moby Dick, I used to actually serve you and your husband. <laughs> I remember. Where are you now? Where can we go? Where can I go for dinner now? Where do you have a uh, restaurant? So yeah, so Brooklyn Shop House is. Uh, we just opened twenty five thousand feet in Times Square, yeah, uh, right on two uh, two forty seven West forty uh, seventh Street. Yeah, I'm sorry, two fifty three West forty seventh Street, and that's basically what I've done because I used to be. I used to own Chinese restaurants for seventeen years, including Philippe Chow. Oh so yes, why? Why, why, why did you uh, leave that? Why? That was a great restaurant. Oh, oh I, 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 I didn't agree with the new partners that came in, and I get really down into it with my book. And I, was, I, I founded it in 2005, and I sold it in 2014 under duress. <laughs> I got you know, these it. Guys were, these guys were the Wharton MBA crooks. <laughs> but Philippe had a French name, and it was Chinese food. I'm not sure yeah. I understood that, but it was great. Why was it a French yeah. name? Well, that was the chef's name. And, <laughs> and actually, it was called Filippo Chow. And I didn't think Filippo was really good on the palate. So it was Philippe Chow. And um, after I left there, I took my chef from there, and I opened up Brooklyn Chop House, which is the marriage of my two favorite cuisines, Chinese food and American steakhouse, where both cultures stay true to each other. Like when you get a steak, you're comparing it to the top 10 steakhouses in New York. Newsweek gave us best steakhouse in New York, actually. And then it's married around Chinese, which is really cool. Because when you go to a chop house, you know, it's cream of spinach, baked potato, and a piece of fish and parsley. Now it's salt and pepper lobster, ginger garlic lobster, Peking duck with that beautiful 35-day dry-aged porterhouse. You're very smart. Why did they nickname you the Golden Greek? Because <laughs> I made them a lot of money. So what happened after that, I became very close with the Genovese's. And they had a lawyer named Patty Sisso. And their lawyer, when I opened my nightclub, Bruges Nightclub on 54th Street, um, I went to him for funding. And he wrote me a check for 600 grand. And basically, I opened and I built out the old Jimmy Westons, which I turned into Rouge Nightclub, in June 94. And I knew where, you know, of course I knew that the money probably came from the Genovese. But all I knew is that he paid me a check, and the check uh, was from his law firm. And, a $600,000, uh, you know, wait a minute, oh, oh. a $600,000 check made out to you from a law firm? Yeah, from well, from his 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 account. Yes. And how how did you get the money? What in quarters and dimes? How do you get no, six hundred thousand dollars? I got I got it in a check from Patty Sisto Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you tell me. Okay, tell me about the book. Be a disruptor. Tell us. Tell us. So basically, you know, I read uh, my favorite things to do is read documentaries and biographies, and every time I read business books. It's starting to get boring where everything is supplied by the same analytics. You hear the analytics over and over on why you succeed and why you fail. 
what I thought was missing was, you know, backing up failure and success and backing it up with true stories. And then discussing the journey of being an entrepreneur, restaurateur, small business owner in the streets of New York City from the late 80s to current time. You know, in the beginning, we had to deal with all the gangsters. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then we dealt with the NBA types. Like, you know, because all of a sudden, every CEO of a Fortune 100 company wanted yeah. to be a restaurateur. Yeah. Uh-huh. So there was a large investment in restaurants. So I became partners with those guys. They became crooks. And that was Philippe Chow at the end. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, and then if you compete with what we were doing with the politicians these last two and a half years, you know, you, you, restaurateurs have always had huge obstacles in trying to be successful. There's no other city like New York. But I got to tell you, doing business in New York has always been challenging. And nothing more <laughs> we're during COVID is what they did to us by shutting down our businesses. It never stopped. We're always a target. Well, everybody in Albany is on parole. So I, I already know this group. But tell me about restaurants today. Do you believe that it's proper for them to be having dinner out in the road where it's engulfing roaches and, and mice for the people who are living next door? Well, I, I think this is the, um, you know, this, this is what happens when you shut down an economy, right? They yeah. shut down an economy without even following the science. Then Comrade Cuomo came out with some data that 74% of the spread is home gathering and only 1.5% of the spread are restaurants. But all he kept doing was driving people out of restaurants and driving them into their homes. And nothing screamed that louder than New Year's Eve a year and a half ago when they shut down New Year's Eve at 10 o'clock at night. So we could watch de Blasio and, and his wife dance on an empty Times Square. Well, I got to tell you, Cindy, our, our, our delivery business was thriving. We weren't sending romantic dinners for two to apartments. We were sending platters of food for 20, 30, 40 people into two-bedroom apartments. So if that was truly the data, that 74% of the spread were home gatherings, why in hell are we pushing them into home gatherings and not bringing them to restaurants where restaurants is where they're safest? None of this made sense. So tell me in one sentence or less, what should restaurants do today? Well, you know, there is a lot of silver linings. It's very hard to do it in one sentence, but... Okay, we, take we a paragraph, the go. Two biggest leases, uh, the two biggest leases in New York City, we signed them. Um, and these were deals that, you know, restaurants handed in the keys that cost $14, $15, 20000000 million to build out. And, you know, we, we were taking restaurants for pennies on the dollar in May and September of 2020. That never would have happened if the pandemic didn't happen. So are we going to continue to have restaurants we can't get food. We can't get waiters. We can't get people to work. We can't get people to go into the restaurants in some cases. What is going to happen to the industry? Well, when I was jumping up and down when they shut down the economy, I said all of this, I said all of this was going to happen on my social media. I said two years ago, I said all the, the supply chains are going to break. Inflation is going to go through the roof. Diesel is going to go through the roof, which makes delivery driving you know, from your vendors much more expensive. I said, all this is going to happen, plus all the other things that come with shutting down an economy where they don't know how to flatten the curve for depression, alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness, and crime. Crime is connected to all of this. 
I know. And I and know. I've had many conversations with Mayor Adams. And, you know, oh, why? Why talk to okay. him at all? Why talk to him at all? He doesn't know anything. Yeah. It, it, well, I got to tell you, I mean, like he said it and I kind of agree. It took eight years to screw it up. It's going to take a little while to fix it. But I, I told him recently the time is now because I'm opening my Greek restaurant in Greenwich Village. Um, and basically I can't open because McDougal Street has been taken over by criminals and drug dealers. So there was a big expose on it in the New York Post last week. Yeah, I know. I can't open my restaurant because of this. So now all the police now are jumping up and down and saying, okay, we were here to help. So usually, you know what, power to the press. That's what us small business owners need. We need voices like yourself to try to level the playing field and make this fair because it's been very unfair for our industry for years. I know that. Especially the last two and a half I know that. The trouble with you, Stratus, is you're too boring to talk to. That's the problem. You never have anything to say. Uh, tell I no me where shelter. I can go, and I'm going to go to your restaurant, and I'm going to, I hope you'll pick up the check, and I'm going in any case, even if you don't. Okay? Of course. I love you, and thank yeah, you for Brooklyn, talking to Brooklyn me, Brooklyn Shop House is at 253 West 47, <laughs> and then we have another one at 150 Nassau Street down by the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm going. I'll see you soon. Thank you, lovey. Thanks, Stratus. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am back. I am back after the two-minute break. And you have to bear with me. This may not be your interest, but it is mine. I want to talk about something that grieves me. Hong Kong. Hong Kong was once the equivalent of a mistress. Hong Kong was the kept woman of Asia. Rich, lush, flash a buck, get anything you want. I lived there for years. Facing the Star Ferry was the five-star Peninsula Hotel on Kowloon's side. Every floor had its own private butler. The Mandarin, which was on mainland side, their executives wore frock coats, striped trousers, and the page boys wore white gloves. I lived in the Crown Colony's 404 square miles, I was designing a gold jewelry collection for Cartier. Also, I was writing President Sukarno of Indonesia's As Told to Me Autobio. That took years, and I needed to get out periodically to have a decent glass of water. Let me tell you about the Hong Kong we have just now lost. Cloth Lane hustled batiks, silks. Wing on Lanes had handbags, shirts, scarves, bargained for right in the streets. Stanley Market's locally made Calvin Klein jeans got tailored to fit for 10 bucks American. Hollywood Road had curb-to-curb antiques. Nathan Road's Golden Mile had ivory shops, department stores, while you wait tailors right in the gutter. A crowded land of contrasts, old world China temples and billion dollar skyscrapers, curbside barbers, fortune tellers, and professional letter writers, Canton Road's morning jade market, and Macau Ferry's night market had stuff all displayed just laying on brown paper. Ocean Terminal and East Simon Shatsui, the shopping center, 
had thousands of fixed-price boutiques, from Gucci, Pucci, to Fiorucci. Alexandra House, you bought jewelry, silks, brocade pajamas for days without once even going outside. Kai Tak Airport, three miles from the town center, fly over mountain peaks onto a runway jutting into the sea, overlook fragrant harbor which bisected Kowloon mainland from Hong Kong Island, see 235 islands like fishing villages, Cheng Chao, with houses that lived on stilts, and you could see the enclave of Macau. Canton Kowloon Railway chugged through rice paddies where an ox had the right of way, and the aged tram shot up Victoria Peak, 1,309 feet at a 45-degree angle in eight minutes. The colony's lifeline, now dead, was its harbor. Ancient junks housed boat people. Star Ferry took six minutes to cross ceaselessly at four-minute intervals. There were Walla Wallas, the sampans or water taxis. On board, you would feast on fresh prawns if you're not finicky about the napkins, which were sheets torn from a roll of pink toilet paper. A few bucks American and a sampan float alongside would serenade you. A bowl of handmade noodles from street side, curb side noodle makers. Savories washed down with chingcha or polai, the strong local brew. Food Street had 25 restaurants. The colony did cricket, squash, regatta racing, rugby, and golf at Fanning, swimming at Repulse Bay, horse racing at Happy Valley. Depending on your pleasure, there were Susie Wong districts like Wan Chai or glitzy discos, international cabarets, Chinese opera, or on-team meeting places where coat and tie is required. There's still mahjong and the tight, slinky chungsum, and in some places even an abacus. Listen, I know we grieve today, not only for our own problems, but for the horrors of Ukraine, the worries of Taiwan, Israel, and Palestine, the Koreas. But, excuse me, for at this moment I am shedding a tear for my beloved Hong Kong, where I spent years and which has been swallowed by its big brother to the north. I apologize, but I am shedding a tear. As long as I'm pirouetting around, and I know it's only summertime, and this is a little early, but I actually do have one Thanksgiving fervent wish. Now that I'm out of Hong Kong, I want to talk about Thanksgiving, which is months away. It happens 
since I have spent most of my early years abroad in the East, I'm into one early Thanksgiving wish. Look, I know. Camels are the taxicabs of the Sahara Desert. Camels do not need to pee. For hours they carry their own body water without needing some oasis or desert loo. So, like I say, I know that this is a few months too early for me to have a Thanksgiving wish. But my one question is, somewhere, somehow, sometime, someplace, is there not some animal behaviorist who can manage to intermarry a friendly camel someplace from any place to my small, incontinent Yorkie? And as long as we're talking about Jellybean, my Yorkshire Terrier brings me to a story. When our last mayor, de Blasio, was in my home, he played with my dog. So I said, honey, you should have your own pet. All the famous politicians always had a dog at their feet or on their lap when addressing the public. It makes them appear softer, kinder, as if they were obvious animal lovers. So de Blasio agreed. He said, yes, you are absolutely correct. He and his mathematically light wife, were not known to be big-time spenders. So I'd said to him, Listen, I have a long-time breeder. I use her. She's my friend. As a favor to you, I will buy you a dog. I will pay for it myself. I will then give it to you. You can call it, ready, my new Yorkie. He said, ah, oh, oh, wow, terrific. Thanks, great idea. De Blasio went home, back to Gracie Mansion. Twenty minutes later, he called, and he said, thanks, but no, we can't. He said, my wife doesn't want it. So now you know who ruled the city and why he is now out in Brooklyn, sitting on his assets. Okay, I have to tell you, I thank you for listening to me. I appreciate it. I love you guys. I will be back again, if they still let me, next Sunday from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.